This morning's sermon text is from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in, suffer share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. I would imagine most of you know about the uh, Ironman competition. It's kind of a, a test of endurance and strength. It was probably started in the mid-70s. It was, um, it's really a combination of three disciplines. It's, uh, it's swimming, and it's cycling, and it's running. Uh, but it's a grueling race. Uh, the swim is 2.4 miles. Uh, first, you swim that. You come out of the water, and you get on a bike, and then you ride for 112 miles. And then you get off your bike at the end of 112 miles, and you begin a run, a long run, a run of 26.2 miles, a marathon. You cover over 140 miles. And uh, the winning time, at least in 2022, was seven hours and 40 minutes. It is a test of endurance, swimming and cycling and running. It's a test of strength. You, you know, it, it's, it's pushing our physical abilities to the very limit to endure like that. Well, you know, Paul is languishing in prison here, and he's enduring well. And, and he's speaking to Timothy in this letter, kind of an older seasoned pastor to a younger pastor, calling him to a different type of endurance, a, a spiritual endurance. You know, it's really a, a call for all of us to endure. You, you know, we live in a post-Christian culture now, and so many of the, the cultural views on sexuality, on gender, on marriage, on education, on government, on health, they've shifted significantly such that the Christian often feels like they're in a bit of a headwind. They're, they're actually going against the tide. How does the Christian endure? And, and these different cultural views aren't in the halls of academia. They're in our homes. They're in our schools. They're in our sports. They're in our communities. They're in our workplaces. So how does the Christian endure and, and press on in faithfulness? This is really what the call of this entire letter is about. And we're going to see that Paul writes to Timothy, and, and he is writing to him as a child in the faith. He's probably mentored Timothy for 15 years. Paul knows what he's going to face. Paul has faced betrayals, desertions from the faith. He's faced opposition from false teachers. He has faced opposition from the Roman government. He's in prison, actually, as the letter's being written. He's even facing his own death. And so he wants to import to Timothy, this is how you endure. And so our passage really gives us four keys to endure. How will we endure? You know, Jesus asked in Luke 18, in a passage about the end times, he says, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on earth? Will he find those who endure? That's what the call of Scripture is and particularly our text. So uh, the four things. Uh, the first thing is to seek uh, the grace that's in Christ Jesus. How do we endure? We have to seek the grace. Look with me at verse one again. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace 
that is in Christ Jesus. Now he says, you then. That could be translated, but you, Timothy. But you, Tim. Now, remember, 15 to 18, we just heard about those people deserting Paul in the faith from Asia. And saying, he's saying, they deserted, but you, Timothy, you're different. Uh, you are to be strong. Now, when you, when you hear that kind of call, be strong, um, to be honest with you, my mind kind of went to that scene in Gladiator, you know, when uh, Russell Crowe is kind of rallying his troops. He's, the, he's kind of the commander of the northern Roman armies, and they're about to attack, and he says, strength and honor. He's saying, be strong, you know. That's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about kind of just pump yourself up, look deep within. But what do you think when you think of strength? If you were to identify a strong person, what would it look like to you? Would it be brain power? Would it be muscle mass? Or would it be business connections? Would it be financial security? Would it be social position? What's strong to you? Because what Paul is calling Timothy to is a strength that's found in the grace that's found in Jesus Christ. It's in the grace of the gospel. Now, remember, last week we just spoke about this. He talks about the grace that was given before the ages began, and it's now appeared in Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So this idea that strength is found in the grace that comes from one who has lived and died. But he says, I'm alive forevermore. I hold the keys of death in Hades. He's the sovereign one. He's the one who dispenses grace. He's the one who gives to us what we need to endure. So he's saying, be strong, not in some inner resource that you have or some untapped potential. Nothing in you, it's in him. That's the source that we're appealing to Christ to give us grace to endure. Paul says it this way in 1 Tim, in the first letter he wrote, he said, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. Or in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Do you see this idea of us repairing to Christ when facing press, we repair to Christ and we seek grace by asking, by pleading, by appealing to him. Give me the grace I need to endure. I, last week I mentioned, this isn't spinach out of a, you know, this isn't kind of spinach for Popeye. It doesn't work that way. It's that soft undergirding that he will hold us fast. We just sang about it. You know, Charles Spurgeon writes about this kind of grace that is in Christ. He says, Christ, and, and he likens Christ to a fountain. He says, Christ has grace without measure in himself but he has not retained it for himself. As the reservoir empties itself into the pipes, so has Christ emptied out his grace for his people. He seems only to have in order to dispense to us. He stands like the fountain, always flowing, in order to supply the empty pitchers and the thirsty lips which draw nigh unto it. So it, it, it's a call. Paul saying, Timothy, you're not going to make it apart from Christ. You can know a lot of the Bible. You can be in the faith alone. You're not going to make it apart from you going to Christ for the grace that he has in himself. So how will you endure? Well, by making a practice of appealing to Christ. I need the grace right now to do whatever's before me. I don't worry about next week. I'm just trying to get through the day. 
So just give me the grace for the day. Now, you may notice this is called a, a passive imperative. It's be strong. He's calling us to do something, to be strong, uh, but the strength isn't in us. It's a derived strength. And, and it seems like a contradiction, but it's not at all. He's calling us to act. And the act that we do is we go to him who has the strength. So we appeal to him. We ask him for grace. But, but here's the kicker, and here's the irony in it. It's only those who are weak that go to him for the strength. If you don't feel weak, you're not going to go. You know, when you feel at the top of your game, when you feel confident, you've done this before, I don't need any help. Then, then you're independent. You don't run. It's the one who understands that the strength they need is not in themselves. It doesn't reside there, but it resides in Christ. He's drawing us to himself. So it's in a position of weakness. This is the irony of the Christian life. You could call weakness the new strength. To know that you're weak is when you then move to be made strong. But you've got to be weak. And we don't want to be weak. Nothing in our culture encourages weakness. Nothing in our culture encourages dependence. Nothing in encourages us to any sort of, you know, well, I don't have what it takes. No, 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 don't, don't say that. You know, but I'm saying, yeah, it is true. You don't. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Can we say that I'm content with those things? I mean, none of us are content with that. But Paul says, I'm content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecution. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So, so this is clearly counterintuitive. It, it, it's recognizing our weakness. That's how we do ministry. So I prepare for sermons. God, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm in meeting. I don't know what to say. These situations, these complex family dynamic problems. I, I don't. I don't know the answer. I, I don't have it. Some marriages it's taken 20 years to get in a corner. Think in a half an hour, it's going to be, oh, here's a way. No, God, you've got to help us. You know, we're weak. We need your grace. We need the grace. I don't want us to overcomplicate what he's saying. It's simply appealing to him on a regular basis. Why do you think Jesus, when he taught the Lord's Prayer, he says, give us this day our daily bread. Why didn't he say, give us our weekly bread, our monthly bread, our annual bread? He's trying to teach in us the reality of what creatures do to the creator. We repair to him for this grace. So if we're going to endure in this culture, I don't have any slick answers for you, but I do have one to introduce to you or to remind you of who is like a reservoir. And you bring your empty pitcher and you bring your thirsty lips to him and you ask him, give me the grace I need to just be faithful today. Don't worry about next week. You may not have it, but today, help me to be faithful to you. So Paul's saying to Timothy from prison, Paul wasn't looking at, you know, the next two years of his life. He was just looking at the day. There's wisdom there. So, so the first thing to endure is to seek the grace that's in Christ. He is full. We just come to him. Jesus, give me the grace I need. 
Maybe it's to be fighting some sin. Maybe it's to be being more evangelistic. Maybe it's to be more forgiving to my spouse. Maybe it's to be more generous with my money. Uh, Give me the grace to do this. I think you're calling me to do it. Give me the grace. Okay, secondly, we endure by entrusting uh, the gospel to others. Uh, Part of our endurance is we don't sit there and just endure, but we entrust. Look with me at verse 2. He says, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, remember last week, uh, what, what Paul said to Timothy is, guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. So Paul had been given this gospel. He, of course, preached it to Timothy. Timothy now has the gospel. It's been entrusted to him. He says, guard it. The way you guard the gospel is by by sharing the gospel. So he's telling Timothy, entrust it to faithful men who can entrust it to others. In other words, what Paul has said, you know, he said, what you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses could have been at his ordination. It could have just been the collection of all his teaching and preaching the entirety of Paul's ministry that Timothy has heard. What you've heard from me, pass on to others. Don't keep it for yourself. The fact that you may be here today and you know the gospel, I praise God for that. But it's not simply for it to reside in your heart and mind, but it's to be entrusted to others, to faithful men who will be able to entrust it to yet others. Do you see there's like four generations here? Paul has entrusted it to Timothy, and then Timothy has an, is to entrust it to faithful men, and these faithful men are to entrust it to others. It's a succession, if you will. Now, when he says faithful men, actually the Greek word is anthropi. It's just kind of people. It's not males. Now, I think the context would indicate that he's got to be speaking at least to Timothy regarding the elders, because we, we read about that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, where elders are to be, of course, teaching, and they're entrusted with the gospel to entrust to others. So I think Paul's telling Timothy, make sure potential elders and present elders that they have the gospel, and they're training others with the gospel. But as we're going to see in just a moment, I think it goes wider than that. But I want you to see the succession here, that while we do face these headwinds, the responsibility of entrusting to others who are faithful to entrust to others remains the same. So we hear the expression, apostolic succession. Now, from my Roman Catholic days, that would mean that one pope to another pope to another pope, the apostolic role or the role of apostle, the vicar of the church, the pope, goes from generation to generation. I probably follow what my professor of theology teacher told me, David Wells. He says, no, the apostolic succession is the apostolic teaching being passed from generation to generation. That's what, it's not an office that is to be entrusted to another. It's the body of the apostles' teaching is taught from one generation to another. It's essential. If you're here today and you're a Christian, someone entrusted you with it. I mean, someone taught you. It didn't didn't start here. It started in the, the Middle East. But if we stand here claiming allegiance to Christ as our king, Someone had to pass it to us. This is kind of the the chain of discipleship here from one generation to another. Faithful people passing it to faithful people. 
Now, in, in this church, so what do we do with this? You know, how do we entrust it? Well, we as a church, as a corporate church, I think we're trying to do this with our intern program. So we have seminarians here and we bring them in. They teach, we teach them classes. We have them read books, write papers. Uh, they have to state their theological positions on things. We challenge them. We try to sharpen their pencil, if you will, in terms of how to understand ministry. We have a PA position, a pastoral apprentice. Dalton will be starting uh, this Friday. Now, that's a full-time position. He'll be in the office with us all the time. He'll be at elder meetings. He'll be preaching. He'll be teaching. We'll be able to watch him, encourage him, admonish him, trying again to entrust a faithful man. We look at you. I have every man in this congregation on a piece of paper that I look at. Where are they? Are they growing? How's their family? Trying to assess where they are, trying to, with the leadership team of this church, trying to assess how do we see them grow? So we do that as a church. At the same, pray for the women too. Don't worry about that. I have another list for praying for families. Uh, but, but that's what we're doing as a church. But, but as people, uh, so it's not just speaking to men here, elders per se. This call to entrust to others, it should take place in your families. I mean, parents to children. I mean, that's a primary point of entrusting the gospel, of speaking the gospel, of teaching the gospel, but not just within families, member to member. Because remember I said, uh, pass it on and trust it to faithful people, he says. It, you get the idea when you read this entrusting of mentoring, or let's just call it the biblical word, discipleship. You know, we have this call to disciple one another, uh, when I say disciple, I don't mean like this didactic teaching, like formal teaching. There is teaching that goes on from the pulpit and in the Sunday school classes. Uh, but when I'm speaking about something a little more informal, a little bit more life on life, we are called to disciple one another. And that is to walk together for the progress of one another's faith. We covenant together as a church that your spiritual health or struggle is mine, too. It's ours. We share it together. This isn't a solitary walk of Jesus and me. It's kind of Jesus and us. Uh, we're doing this together. Uh, many of you have been discipled. Have you discipled others? Uh, you've benefited from discipleship and people pouring in. Have you done that for others? See, I think it's absolutely essential. You, you may be saying in my mind, you may be saying, well, I'm just too busy, or it's too messy, or I need to still be discipled. But I, I want to pull discipleship down from this rarefied air that we keep it. Discipleship, simplest definition I've seen, is doing spiritual good for another. That's all. Doing spiritual good for another. Just doing some spiritual act of goodness for you. It may be reading a book of the Bible with you. We have the book one-on-one. -on -one. It just teaches you how to read the Bible with one another. You read a chapter. I read the same chapter. We talk, hey, what's it say about God? You know, what's it say about us? And what should we do about God? You know, now that we've learned this about God. It, it, it's really not, we don't, want, we don't want to make it too, too difficult. Or reading a Christian book together. And how does it apply to our lives? Or talking about the highs and lows of faith. Or praying with one another. Or, or holding, holding the other person accountable, just meeting with them to see how they're doing in life and faith. 
Uh, friends, if we don't do this kind of discipleship, then you're going to see what happens to many nations. When discipleship doesn't happen, then you see nations secularize. Now, I'm not saying this is a Christian nation at all, but, but the influence of Christianity wanes as discipleship wanes. The generations don't keep... That's why many scholars will say we're one generation away from collapse. Because if you don't pass it on, it doesn't just go there without you. So there's this call. So one of the verses for me that really was instructive in terms of pastoring is in Philippians 1 where Paul's debating, you know, he's in prison again in the Philippian letter and he says, I desire to depart and be with the Lord. He says, but I will remain, I'm convinced, he says, that I'll remain uh, on account of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So Paul saw his role as making sure that the, that the faith of the people of Philippi, it would progress, it would grow, it would deepen, their knowledge of God would increase, uh, but their joy, their affections would also grow. And you've heard me say this over and over to you. Uh, that's why I see what my role is. It's for the progress and joy of your faith. That's why I ask you every year, do you love them more? If you don't love them more, then, then something's not working because we're to be progressing. We're to be being sanctified. This happens, of course, through the ministry of the pulpit, the ministry of the education and the Bible studies, but it also happens with your lives intersecting one another. So to what degree have you done that? Uh, let me encourage you. Discipleship is simply doing good for another. It may be asking them, how are they doing in the faith? How can I pray for you? I really want to try to make this not seem so difficult to grasp or even to consider doing. Uh, so Paul's saying, Timothy, endure. I want you to endure by being strong in the grace that comes to us in Christ and be strong while you entrust it to others. Uh, but then thirdly, to endure, we have to embrace the reality of suffering. Boy, that's so hard to say, isn't it? You have to embrace it. Look with me at two and three. Uh, excuse me, uh, verses three and four. He says, share in suffering. That was back from chapter one, verse eight. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Now, many of you are note takers, so I want you to realize that this idea of embracing suffering has three metaphors to it. Three metaphors. You see soldiering, athlete, and a farmer. So I'm going to speak about each. Don't, you know, otherwise your little outlines are going to run crazy and... Uh, and I know some of you that will torment for the rest of the week. So three metaphors here on what it means to embrace suffering. First, he says, embrace it like a soldier. Now, remember, Paul was familiar with the soldier. I mean, Paul was in prison, so he saw a lot of soldiers. And he lived in a country that was occupied by a Roman military, saw a lot of soldiers. Roman soldiers were single-minded in their devotion. They were single-minded. You have to be as a soldier. I mean, think about it. I mean, you're, you could be engaging in battle in any moment. There's all kinds of physical training. There's hardships that you're living in. Not getting hot meals. Not getting a comfortable bed. There are hardships that you have to embrace as a soldier. There, there's nothing glamorous about it. It is challenging and difficult. You know, John Wayne once, John Wayne, if those of you who are under 40, he was a big TV star and made all kinds of Western and military movies. But when John Wayne... When he appeared before the military during World War II to kind of encourage them, like on that Bob Hope tour, 
they would encourage the men of World War II. He went, they booed him. They booed him. Do you know why? Because he glamorized war. He romanticized it. His movies are always clean and easy and always victorious. They know what it's like. They know that in the real deal. I mean, there's nothing glamorous about war. You have to be single-minded. Your life depends on it. That's why he says don't get entangled in the civilian pursuits of the world. Focus on what you're doing. If you're a child of God, focus on that. Uh, to, to what degree do you feel your own Christian life is marked by a single-mindedness? Uh, to what degree do you struggle with getting entangled? Now, I know when I ask this question, we're going to go in a thousand different directions. I'm not saying that you've got to neglect your family. I'm not saying that you've got to quit your job and go into full-time ministry. I'm not saying that you shouldn't enjoy the things that God gives to you. I think what he's warning us here is it's an idea of proportion. To what degree are the things of this life distracting you from actually being strong in the faith that you can endure? Uh, what things are diverting your attention? To, it may be a hundred things in a room with this many people. Augustine warned of the love of possessions. He says, the love of worldly possessions entangles the soul and keeps it from flying to God. You know, what are the things that cause us to be distracted from walking out faith as we understand it in Scripture? What are the things that kind of tangle us up? I'm not really saying anything different than what Jesus said. I mean, Jesus said in Matthew 6, he says, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. The Gentiles run after those things, but your heavenly Father knows you need those things. Therefore, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all those things will be given to you as well. God will take care of those things. He knows what you need. He has made you. He knows you need to eat. He knows you need to be clothed. He knows you need shelter. He knows you need these things. Seek first his kingdom. Now, uh, th this is, um, you know, it's like weeding a garden maybe, right? Well, when you weed a garden, you're not actually like changing the, you know, the constitution of the plants in the garden, but you are giving them a higher probability of doing well because the weeds are removed that are stealing the nutrients. And, and so it, it's helping them grow. We have to do this with our lives. What are we getting entangled in? What has kind of cropped up in our lives? And I'm not just going after social media. It can be a hundred things. It can be work. It could be popularity. But what has gotten into your life that needs to be removed? You know, every year we used to have to take the boat out of the water. And back in the day, you'd have to scrape the barnacles off every year. Scrape the barnacles that grew on there and then repaint the whole of the boat. You know, Carol and I try to do this on a regular basis. What is in our life right now that shouldn't be? Or what, are, what good things are there that are pushing out the best? Now, granted, this is going to look different for each of you. When Carol and I were raising three kids, what was entangling to us was very different than what now is to us without any kids in the home. So, so, so it, it changes. This is why it's like walking a tightrope. You know, you're having to do this on a regular basis. What are we involved in that is not? moving us in a singular way towards a growing and a greater love for Christ? It's a good question to ask. If you're married, ask your spouse. If you're not married, ask a friend. What do you see me talking about all the time? What do you see me focused on all the time? I mean, folks, this is something that's not going to happen in a moment. It's a process we do. It's really all of the Christian life. 
we're going to be constantly working at remaining singularly focused on Christ. Look at the second analogy. It's an athlete in verse 5. He says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now, so he's saying here, an athlete has to compete according to the rules. The rules probably being discipline, right? So to enter into a Greek contest in the first century, you would have to pledge that you had prepared for 10 months before you qualified to run the race or do whatever the actual sporting event was. You couldn't take a shortcut. You had to be disciplined to train for that, or you would be disqualified. It was the mark of the athlete to be disciplined so as when he runs the race or she runs the race, they will be running it with the intent to win. So it speaks to us, the Christian life. Paul's saying to endure we have to be like the athlete, to be disciplined. To what degree do you see discipline? To what degree does discipline show itself in your Christian life? I figured when I asked that question, there'd be like a collective sigh. Ugh, why do you have to go to discipline? Nobody loves to, everybody hates discipline, don't they? They just do. Why? Because it's so consistent, it's so demanding of us. And yet he says to endure, there has to be a measure of increasing discipline in our lives. You know, the Christian, the Christian faith that we have engaged in, for those of us in Christ, it's often referred to as a race. So you see it at the end of this letter in chapter 4, Paul says, I've fought the fight, I've run the race, I've kept the faith. I have, uh, he says in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. I discipline my body, keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You see this? It's a lifestyle here. This isn't gutted out for two weeks for physical change in your life. It's how are we going to be disciplined in a sustainable way so that we can run the race as to win. So how are you running your race? To what degree is discipline a product or a part of? Now this may be, I'm just gonna start trying to read the Bible on a regular basis. Or I'm gonna start trying to engage one member of this church a month for lunch to see how they're doing. I don't wanna give you a list of do's, right? But this text is all imperatives which are dues. And there is part of the Christian life is to do, which is to discipline ourselves. If, if you're convicted right now, then ask him for the grace that I just told you about. Just ask him for the grace. Say, God, I can't do this. You have to help me. Now, look with me at the third metaphor, if you're not feeling bad enough at this point. It's a farmer. Look at six. He says, it's the hardworking farmer who wants to have the first share of the crops. The first church I pastored, it was in a farming community, and so there are many farmers in there, and I wasn't raised in a farming community, and so I, uh, I had no idea what a farmer went through. And I'll tell you, one job I do not want, the farmer. I mean, it is a hard job. It is constant. It is regular. It's not flashy. And in fact, one, one scholar said, 
that the farmer's uh, work is void of excitement. I mean, if you want something exciting, do not be a farmer. Paul uses, now at this time of writing in the first century, they think between 80 and 85% of people had some farming experience that they had to feed themselves. So you couldn't, you couldn't go to Chipotle all the time or you couldn't go to the grocery store. You, you had to provide food for yourself. And so people would understand what he's saying. The hardworking farmer, it is hard. It's daily. It's regular. Uh, it, it's, it's patient, right? Because you plant seed, you can't germinate it. You got to wait for the rains. You got to wait for the time. You can't hurry it up. Can't speed it up. It is what it is. You just kind of just, you do your work. You're, you're planting, you're fertilizing, you're, you're weeding, you're fixing. Things. There's always something to fix on a farm. There's never a spare moment on a farm. It, it just always works. And it's a patient work. You can't speed it up. This is a perfect metaphor for the Christian life. There are no, cele we have celebrity pastors. There are no celebrity farmers. There are no celebrity farmers. It, it, it's, the, the Christian life, it, it's not a flashy life. It goes slow. It's, the growth is almost imperceptible. You pour into people's lives, and do they grow? Are they growing? No, they're, yeah, I think they're growing. No, I don't know if they're growing. You know, it, it's this labor of going through the struggles and trials of life. Nothing happens fast. Look in your own lives. Uh, look at the change that's taken place. Sometimes you feel like you've really moved forward, and then you look back, and I don't know. And, and, and Paul's saying that the one who endures has to embrace this. We have to embrace the reality that we want to be single-minded, we need to be disciplined, but we also need to be patient and persistent with each other. It just takes time. I, I tell the interns, you know, that you don't get a report card after a year of ministry. You don't know how you're doing. It's very difficult to assess. Some things are going great. Some things are just a dumpster fire. It's, it's a mix. You don't know how it's going. You just keep plowing the fields. You keep laboring. Paul's, and it's toil. It's toil. That's not my word. It's not me complaining up here. Paul says it. He says in Colossians 1, he says, Him, that's Jesus, Him we proclaim, teaching and admonishing with all wisdom so that we might present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, laboring, laboring with the strength that He provides. God provides the strength. We just saw that with the grace, but we still labor. So the Christian faith is a challenge. It, it, requires, it requires grit. That's how Tim Keller kind of worded it. He said this, what characteristic is most significant predictor of worldly success? Intelligence, talent, attractiveness? Years of social science research has shown that it is in any of those. The most reliable predictor is grit. Grit is also one of the most important character traits for spiritual formation. If you want to become like Jesus, you need to develop a godly grit. The Bible's teaching is that the road to the best things is not through the good things, but usually through the hard things. That, that's, that's what Paul's saying. So, so we face stiff headwinds. That's fine. We just ready ourselves as the soldier as the athlete, as the farmer. But this is where we need the church. Because I tell you, to do this alone, we will flag. We will flag in faith. We will become weak. We need one another. 
encourage one another. So friends, take that call to discipleship as important for us to remain engaged and endure. And then the last thing he says, this is probably the shortest, but most, in some ways for me, the profound, think over the gospel. That's the fourth thing. Think over the gospel. Look with me in verse seven. He says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding and everything. And that Paul is saying, you gotta think. I know that's horrible news today, but you need to think. You need to meditate. You need to contemplate what he's saying. It's not intuitive. It's hard to understand. The Christian faith, it's not reading a comic book. It's difficult. It's challenging. God's ways aren't our ways. His thoughts aren't our thoughts. Things happen and occur that we have trouble understanding. And Paul's not trying to nuance and and make it reductionistic where I'm just going to give it at the lowest common denominator. He said, you've got to think about this. Now, I know you're probably not going to get it all, but you need to think about it. Think over what I say. That's what he said. What's he saying that about? Well, suffering. I mean, if God's sovereign and if he's good and if he's provided his son, then why do you got to take us through the fire? It's hard to understand. But he's saying you've got to think about it. God's ways are not our ways. The way of the cross, you would never invent it. You would never come up with it. You need to think about it. And people, we need to think about what he's saying to us right here. We need to think about, do we understand how the present sufferings won't be compared to the future glory? Do you give thought to that? Because I'll tell you, if you don't think about the unique way God draws us to himself through trials, then it's going to be difficult to endure you got to think about what he says. But I think when he says, think over what I say, he's also saying, think about what rewards there are. Because he mentions it. The athlete, he has the crown. He, he runs to win a crown. And James says the same thing in 112. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Or I could translate it, blessed is the woman who endures. For when he or she has stood the test, They will receive the crown of life. Can you imagine? We have to think over that, right? We have to think about that day. I'm constantly reminding the elders about that day in 1 Peter 5, 4. It says, when the chief shepherd appears, he will present to you an unfading crown of glory. Why do I say that to them? I want to keep encouraging them. I want to keep them pressing on. I want to keep pressing. I want to encourage myself, too. So, so, so this idea of thinking future. How about, how about the uh, soldier? The soldier is, is not getting entangled to please the one who enlisted him. I mean, to bring pleasure to God. Well, who doesn't think about, well done, my good and faithful servant? Are those words that you ever think over? Do you ever think over on that moment when your eyes close in death, open to life, and you see the face of the one who died for you. Do you ever ever think, what do you want to hear? Hi? What what do you want to hear? (laughs) We don't think this over. We want to hear, well done. You are the present for which I labored. Think over these things. It will cause you to endure. Or how about the farmer? who gets his first share of the crops. Can you imagine that day when you're in glory and you see the fruit of your labor, 
Maybe the, the constancy you had with a troubled friend that you just kept serving when they were struggling and you were used by God to keep them in the faith that they would mature, that they would endure, or being bold one time and sharing the gospel, and you planted some seeds that maybe you didn't see germinate and produce fruit, but later on other people were brought into their lives by the Spirit of God, and they came to faith. But then you see that fruit, or you see the one who, who endured well, or, or all the different people that you touch with the gospel. And then on that final day, you see what your labor produces. That's what he's speaking about here. Think over what I say. It is worth it to endure. For that I'm not being a mercenary here. Jesus himself said, don't store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Store for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. He wants us to think this way. He wants us. To, he wants to motivate us. Why? Because it takes a lot to endure. I still remember in high school doing two days in football from like 8 to 11 in the blazing sun and 1 to 3. And it was just high school football, but it was hot, dusty, tiring. But you did that for the season. You did that to have the energy. To, so you were motivated by the future bringing you through the present struggle and trial. So what Paul's saying here, and nobody can say it better because he's in prison enduring. He's saying, Timothy, seek the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He's saying, entrust the gospel to others. He's saying, share in the sufferings that will come with the gospel. And he says, think over the beauty of the gospel. And friends, if we do this together, I have no doubt that we'll endure just fine. Let's take a moment and ask God for grace, and then I'll pray for us. Father, we confess to you our, our weakness. We, we think about these words, they make sense to us, and yet we, <clears throat> we struggle to believe that we can endure like we're instructed. And so we confess to you, I confess, Father, uh, a, a need for your grace to be pronounced in our lives in, in a tangible, palpable way that we feel strengthened to be faithful in our marriages, in our lives, in our workplaces, uh, to be faithful in our discipleship of others, to be, to be faithful in being singularly minded. Lord, we are so attracted to the shiny things of this world and, and to, to easily get entangled in these things. Father, would you, would you Give us that grace that is in Christ. We come with our empty pictures. We want to be filled up. And so, Father, help us. Help, help the souls before me, particularly for those who are, who are struggling in faith right now. Uh, God, would you give them an extra special measure of grace? And, and, Father, for those that are uncertain about the faith, maybe they haven't given thought to it. They haven't thought of what you've said. They've struggled with many things in the faith. Father, grant to them the wisdom they need. You, you prom uh, we're promised that you'll do this, that you will help us understand. But Father, at a minimum, let the impress of this sermon produce in us fruit for your glory and for our joy this week. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.